Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased you've been able to join in for the program. The world's looking for an excuse to party and the result is a bad headache the next day. God wants to give you the right reason to rejoice and not give you the headache. In Jeremiah chapter 31 is this verse. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Wow, how awesome is that? Even though we wander from God and he can seem to be far away, he loves us with an everlasting love. It doesn't get any better than that. Tonight, Dr. Corbett opens chapter 31 of Jeremiah to discover we are loved with an everlasting love. We're looking Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. Now, this language is probably lost on most of us. But let's understand that at this time, all the clans of Israel did not exist. That is, Israel had gone into civil war about a hundred and something years earlier. And the result was that the ten tribes to the north were separated politically separated from the two tribes to the south where Jeremiah is based. And the ten tribes to the north became known as Ephraim or Israel. And because they were cut off politically and geographically from the temple, and because they were in almost constant civil war, they didn't go to the temple where Jeremiah was a priest to worship God. And as a result of their lack of focus, and we all need focus when it comes to worship eugene peterson says coming to uh, for a christian coming to church on a sunday is like having the lens of their slr camera just refocused brought back into focus where you remember that's right seven seven days ago i remember i was in focus i remember it was about jesus I remember it was about him being the servant of all and I'm following in the footsteps, blood-stained footsteps of the greatest servant who ever lived. That's right, I forgot over these last six, seven days, I thought this was about me, but it's actually about him. I'm back in focus now. I'm ready to lay my life down, which is what worship is. Worship is surrender and laying down. And as we sing, we're bringing our lives back into focus. And so these 10 northern tribes had been uh, without focused worship. And, the, and when that happens, you become distracted. And they were, and they began to worship things made of wood and stone and metal. And they began to worship natural objects, the sun and the moon. They began to take their children and throw them into furnaces as an offering to these gods. And God was grieved. And as Tony said, we have an intuitive sense of justice. And when we're watching a movie and the bad guys are getting away with it and the bad guys are winning, we just hope that someone like someone like Jason Bourne turns up and does what Jason Bourne does. We have that sense of justice because we intuitively know what's wrong. Because we are created in the image of a God. Who determines what is right. Remember in the Garden of Eden. It was Satan who said don't. Let me paraphrase. Has God said you can't eat of this? Yeah God has said we can't eat of it. Or touch it. Which is interesting. She made it bigger and uglier than it actually was. And then Satan says. That's not true. Still says that today. What you read in the Bible is not true. 
God knows the day you eat of this, your eyes will be opened and you will know right from wrong. What's he saying? That if you rebel against God, you can determine for yourselves what is right for you or wrong for you. And don't we hear that all the time? Well, that might be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. Or your Christianity might be right for you, but it's not right for me. That's called relativism. And the question you've always got to ask a relativist is, okay, your morals are relative. Relative to what? Because we see that there is a God who determines what is right and what is wrong. And when the 10 northern tribes of Israel said, we will no longer listen to that God, we will go our own way. God brought in the Assyrians today, uh, Persia, um, Iran. And they came and took them out of the country and they vanished, basically vanished as a nation. They became known as the dispersion. They vanished. So when God says, I'll gather all the clans of Israel, that's a big statement. That's a huge statement. The other thing too is in this verse, did you, did you notice this is a wedding statement? You will be mine. I take you as my wife. You will be mine. It's a marriage covenant statement. All right, next verse. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The next verse, the Lord appeared to him from far away. And here's Jeremiah giving some history here. The Lord appeared to him, to Israel, from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. I I reckon you could just about put your initials next to that verse. Because God loved you when you were far away. God loved you even when you didn't love him back. Okay, I want you to, let's just pause here. Because so far in Jeremiah, we've heard Jeremiah say, unless you repent, unless you turn back to God, unless you acknowledge the wrong that you've been doing, unless you come to him and break open your life and ask for his mercy and forgiveness, you will perish. And you will perish by famine, sword or pestilence. And then he said, I will destroy this temple. This is God talking. Thus says the Lord, do not say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, for I will destroy the temple of the Lord. We're back in about Jeremiah chapter 7. God says that. And of course, the superstition with which the temple was held, the people couldn't believe it. God would never destroy his house. That's where he lives. That's his address. He picks his mail up there. He's not going to destroy it. And this attitude that God is in there, we close the door, now we can't see what we're doing, was a superstitious nonsense that had gripped the people. And Jeremiah said, if you don't turn back to God, it's not only famine, sword and pestilence, it's the temple destroyed. It's not only the temple destroyed, it's the best of your young people. The best of your young people will be taken as prisoners. The word is captive, taken as captives, and they'll be taken to Babylon. And of course, when he was prophesying this, Babylon was not the world empire. Assyria was, modern day Iran. 
was the world empire. This was, a, this was just outrageous what he was saying. And yet it all happened. And here we are now, exactly everything except the temple being destroyed had happened. Babylon had come in. They'd taken the best of the young men, including Daniel, including Ezekiel, and taken them away. So let's think about this. God has just said, when you were far away, I reached out in love to you because I am the God of everlasting love. I've loved you with an everlasting love. So how do we put all famine, sword, pestilence, temple destroyed, your best children taken captive? How do we put all that together with a God of everlasting love? What do we do with that? For some people, it sounds like Jekyll and Hyde. So here's the question. What do these prophecies of Jeremiah tell us about God? What do they tell us about God? I think the first thing we need to recognize is that we live in a society, as I mentioned before, that has so, so tried to redefine what love is. Love is you being able and having the right to get what you want. Please, parents, do not teach your children this by the way you respond to them when they demand what they want. I've said it before, but you're in a supermarket. You see a young, precocious, something-year-old saying, I want that lolly! And the mum's going, stop it, stop it. People will think I'm a bad mother if I don't give it to you. No, we won't. We'll think you're a bad mother if you do. Don't give in to that precocious little kid. I'm saying that in love and I really am saying that in love because they need to learn this is not how the world works. Love is not you can have it if you demand it loud enough. That's not love. Jesus gave the best description of love. He was the best description of love. He didn't have to go to the cross. In fact, if anyone had a right not to go to the cross, it was Jesus. Love lays down its rights. And we have a world that is screaming for its rights. It's a world gone mad. So when we, when we ask this question... What do these prophecies tell us about God? And we're, we're trying to balance. Well, hang on, God, boy, he sounds angry in the first 30 chapters. He's famine, sword and pestilence. And now he's a God of everlasting love. What's this about? Well, we can, let's just take it a, a, a piece at a time because I, I think pure love, would, if, if any of us encountered pure love, it would frighten us near to death. It would overwhelm us. And we have a society where young boys are told pure love is getting your way with a girl in a matter of minutes or hours. God help us. So what do we learn about God from Jeremiah? We, we learn that pure love can also be just and holy. What does holy mean? Holy, holy means so special, so pure. There's nothing like it 
as it embodies goodness. Not only is God holy, he is uniquely good. Uniquely good. He's just. You know, that sense that Tony said that when Jack Bauer is, is up against the bad guys and we're going, go Jack, go Jack. Um, that sense of justice that we feel. Imagine we're, we're just a poor reflect. We're creating the image of God. We're a poor reflection of the one who bears that sense of justice infinitely. Imagine how he feels about injustice in the world. And, and we live in a society that, 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 you know, someone said, why is it that we read the prophecies of Jeremiah and, and there's a whole bunch of atheists who read Jeremiah and they're outraged. How could someone be so judgmental, is some of the claims. How could someone tell others what they can and can't do? This is outrageous. And I wonder if that's because the things that Jeremiah calls scandalous and outrageous and heinous sins are done so frequently, so every day, so blasé today, that we can't even begin to understand what justice really looks like now and what real love and real goodness looks like. So what do we learn from Jeremiah so far? That God is a holy and just God. But what do we also learn? Jeremiah was the one used by God to say, this will happen, this will happen, then this will happen, and it did. That's not easy to do. That tells us, here's this word. I love this word. It's a beautiful word. God is sovereign. Sovereign means he's in control. You know, I know that there are people here today and this past week, and I know this, this past week, you have been shocked. You have been beyond surprised. You have been shocked. I know that. Things have happened. Bad things have happened. Things have happened. And as we ponder this, what does God is sovereign mean? It means this. You and I will experience emotions that God will never experience. How's that possible? We're the created. He's the creator. How could he never experience some of the emotions that we feel? God will never feel the emotion of guilt. He'll never feel it. God will never feel the emotion of surprise. God never says, oh, how did that happen? <laughs> He's sovereign. And we, we look at life from the, from the perspective of our eyes and we go, God, you obviously weren't watching. You took your eyes off the ball. My auntie just got cancer. Well, where are you? Or you fill in the blank, whatever it is. And we, we read Romans 8.20. It says, all of creation is subject to futility by him who subjected it in hope. God has subjected your life to a measure of futility. What does that look like? It looks like divorce. It looks like betrayal. It looks like cancer. It looks like a road accident. It looks like someone sabotaging your business, your home, your family. That's futility. Futility. There's no point to it. And yet life, life will deliver you moments of futility. Does that mean there's not a sovereign God? No, not at all. It's irrelevant. It, 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 that, that is not a case against a sovereign God. 
It's at that time, rather than shake a fist at God, you probably want to open your hand and ask him to take it. <laughs> take me. God. Now's not the time where I want to pick a fight with you. Now's the time where I need you. What does this tell us about God? Notice that opening statement here. It says, you'll be my people. And I think that's what God wants to say to you today. He wants you. What does this tell What do we learn? You see... God was angry at the way these people lived. I've discovered this. If you don't care, you don't ever get angry. If you're a parent and you've never been angry by what your children have done, you probably don't care about them. I am overwhelmed with the, just the positive energy I'm, I'm getting here. All the children are going... I don't like where this is going one little bit. You just pronounce the benediction and let's do the final song because I'm not, I'm just, I'm, you, you can preach to the hand, Pastor. I'm just, you were telling me my parents have a right to get angry at me when I step out of line. Oh, now I'm getting some energy. Uh, I just pushed a button in some parents here and. And I'm feeling the love. I'm feeling encouraged to go. Well, we've, we've nearly dealt with point one of 12, so let's keep going. God is relational. God is relational. What does this also tell us? I loved you from afar. When you were far away from me, I loved you. Why did God love you? Nothing good in you. So we learn that God is gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve. What does this also tell us about God? We learn that God is loving. God is loving. You only get angry when you care. God has loved us and he loved Israel with an everlasting love. And here's one of the points that I made right at the start. As with all precious words, love is best described because we live in a generation where if a parent disciplines their child, if a parent says, you do this, there will be consequences and the child is going to test you. Every parent knows that when a... Every parent will discover that when you give your child a consequence for disobedience and that child disobeys, that child is now going to see whether you are a person of your word or not. And here's the question. Is God a person of his word? And we read the last couple of chapters of Leviticus, the last couple of chapters of Deuteronomy, and God says, look, here's how it works. You obey me, you'll enjoy. And he lists it. I will... You'll feel the warmth of my smile. You will have such a blessed life. You'll be blessed in your going out. You'll be blessed in your coming in. And then God says this, but if you don't, if you, living under my smile of approval, living in obedience to me, choose to walk out from that and live over here, this is what will happen. And he lists them. And very interestingly, one of them is you will be blighted in your mind. Mental illness. I don't know if anyone finds this curious that we live in a society now that is mentally becoming sicker and sicker. Isn't that intriguing? I find that, wow. So love, I hope you get a balanced picture that love can mean I love you and because I love you, there's consequences. And that's what God's doing here. 
There's no Jekyll and Hyde here. There's one picture of God. We go on to the next verse, verse 4. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with... Te- oh. <clears throat> i just skip over this verse, I think. Let's just try that one again. And again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Verse 5. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and they shall enjoy the fruit. Just get a picture here. What's happening? For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise, let us go to Zion, to the Lord our God. Samaria, by the way, was Ephraim to the north. And they're saying, hey, let us go to the south where the temple is and let us worship God. That's exactly what wasn't happening. So God says, this is what's going to happen. God's saying, you you will once again have right reasons to rejoice. God wants to give you right reasons to rejoice. The world's looking for an excuse to party and the result is a bad headache the next day. God wants to give you the right reason to rejoice and not give you the headache. Man, that was a Twitter right there. Right there, that was a tweet, I reckon. So God wants people to rejoice for the right reasons. Christianity, following God, is not a matter of being, you know, a lemon juice tester sucker. It's not. It's not. Being a Christian is somebody who can rejoice for the right reasons. And so we come to this verse. For thus says the Lord... Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Wow, big call. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And may God do that. May God save his people. So God gives the best reasons to be rightly happy in him. John Piper, who's a controversial preacher, I love John Piper, great preacher. He he says this, Christians should be Christian hedonists. A hedonist is somebody who only lives for joy and pleasure and happiness. But he says they should be Christian hedonists. Finding their joy in God, being happy in Jesus... And delighting in him all the time, no matter what's going on. Who wants to be a Christian hedonist? (laughs) Feasting on joy and delight and happiness. God gives the best reasons. And here he's saying, I will love you. I will restore you. And you, the result will be, you'll come back under my blessing. You'll plant vineyards. You'll be able to enjoy what you plant. And not only that, while you're doing that, you'll say, hey, I know. Let's go to the temple and have a party of worship and worship God in Zion. And everybody will say, yes, let's. Imagine doing that at school tomorrow morning. Hey, I know. Let's go to church and worship God. Yeah, let's! (laughs) And this is what God is saying. These are the right reasons to to rightly be happy and rejoice. So here's the question. Are you right now enjoying? I mean, who could not be happy listening to me right now? So I I mean, in this season of your life, are you enjoying God's love and happiness right now? Seriously, 
Are you enjoying God's love and happiness? I've discovered that you can be facing some of the most horrible things in your life and there can be the love of God sustaining you, nourishing your soul, keeping you. Your body is not keeping up with your spirit. (laughs) Your body hurts. Every day my body hurts and I just go, Oh God, I'm looking forward to the resurrection. (laughs) No more pain. No more hurting. Hurty knee, hurty whatever. No more. The resurrection, bring it on. Are we enjoying God's happiness right now? Because I think we can. And here's this statement. When you were far away, I loved you with an everlasting love. And here's the beautiful, beautiful sentiment. We're nearly done. Here it is. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how far you've run from God, He invites you to come back. Jesus gave the story of the prodigal son, the father who was waiting on the porch, looking, is my son coming back today? And he gave that picture of God the Father who longs for us to come back, who longs for us to feel his embrace. I want to give you this prayer as a suggestion. Maybe you might own this prayer. Maybe this prayer might be yours. Because today, perhaps, you may have come here thinking a Christian was someone who was religious in some way. And I hope that that's been challenged. Because we're not talking about being religious. We're talking about being people who just surrender to God and allow Him to have His way. This prayer, God, please forgive me. My life is not what it should be. I ask you to heal my wounded and bankrupt soul. You may be flush with funds materially, but you may be spiritually bankrupt. Thank you that Jesus died for me in my place and to give me peace with you for eternity. Please fill me with your spirit and help me to live right for you. You make that prayer. This is not just something that changes your eternity. It changes your life from this point. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to receive your word. For every person here right now, we need a word from you. One word from God can change your life forever. And I pray that the seed of the word of God today would get into your soul. Father, if I've misrepresented you, your heart, your word in any way please take it from the minds of your people and let only that which is good only that which fairly represents you go deep and bring it a harvest i pray now lord have your way in us in jesus name amen What do they say? You can run, but you can't hide. Even though we wander and God seems far away, he loves us with an everlasting love. Stop running. Turn around. He's only a footstep away. More from Dr. Corbett in Jeremiah next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Loved with an Everlasting Love, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For regular updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. 
Dr Corbett is pastor of the Ghana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.